Well, let's turn to uh, the Gospel of Luke. We're going to pick right up where we were at last week, which is in Luke chapter 6. And I didn't realize until I was uh, holding Caden how difficult it is to hold a baby and hold something else in the other hand and do something and think all at one time. So just even in that moment, I had a whole new uh, empathy for the life of a mom who has a cell phone in her hand and a crying baby and all kinds of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in being a mom. So anyways, all that to say, um, we'll see uh, if this message, um, uh, if you don't like it, then just blame it on the fact that I was holding this microphone and we'll just say I was confused, okay? I'm going to tell you up front right away that um, some of you are not going to like this message. I'm just going to get it out there. I have nothing to hide about that, all right? Because uh, the reason for that is, is that what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to pick up where I left off last night, uh, or not last night, but last Saturday, um, talking about what it means for us to love our enemies. And I have decided that if I were to go into most churches and say something to the effect that, you know, maybe Jesus didn't rise from the dead in a body, but it was a spirit, that I would get less complaints than when I talk about loving your enemies. Because this is the one thing that really sets people off. When you start talking about loving your enemies, it is almost impossible to have this conversation without dragging up so much emotion that comes into the process of just listening to the words of Jesus. Earlier today, I um, just offered a thought to Twitter, whatever, whoever that goes to, okay, about loving your enemies, and did not know that it was going to receive uh, the, the absolute hatred for some uh, people out there, uh, because they don't like the idea of loving your enemies in a week like we've just had, because they don't know what that means in relation to things like ISIS and the beheading of Christians in Iraq and in other places. And so the problem is, is that uh, we have to remember what we talked about last week, and that is that when we talk about loving your enemies, we're not talking about some philosopher who lived a long time ago who came up with an idea. We're not talking about some foreign policy maker's opinion that is to be settled in, in the public courts of, of CNN and Fox News and MSNBC. We're talking about Jesus. And we looked last week at the beginning at Matthew chapter 28, because in Matthew 28, Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he says to his disciples, having been raised from the dead, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Now what that means is, is that heaven is the place where God dwells, and earth is the place where humanity dwells. This means that Jesus possesses authority in the place where God dwells. And if Jesus has authority in the realm of God, then certainly Jesus has authority in the realm of humanity. And so Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. There's nowhere you can go in this entire universe that, there, that, that you would ever find a place in which Jesus' authority does not reach to. And so if Jesus has all authority on heaven and earth, and he then says to his disciples to go and baptize disciples of all nations, if they're to go and do this and to make disciples who obey everything Jesus has commanded, 
then it means that all of the things that Jesus has commanded come with the authority of Jesus behind them, and we don't get the option to say, hey, you know, but. See, when it comes to Jesus, you don't get to say but after anything he says. You have to leave your butts at the door, all right? You don't get to say, but I don't like this part. And so we saw last week in Luke chapter 6, these words begin in verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say, this is Jesus. This is the resurrected king who has authority over heaven and earth. And this is what he says, which means it comes with the authority of one who possesses all the authority. We're men and women and God and angels, wherever it is, this is the authority Jesus has. And he says to them specifically, love your enemies. How? By doing good to those who hate you. By blessing those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. So Jesus is saying, love your enemies. And we talked about this last week, that loving your enemies isn't something that is meant to be a form of love that's a brotherly affection. It's not meant to be an erotic, sensual sort of love. It's not a feeling or an emotion, but it's the commitment to the good of the other person. I want to be good to this person. I want to will the good that I have to give on their behalf, even at a great cost to me, because the reason that I know this is what love looks like is because First John and Romans and a number of other places tell me that I know love because Jesus has laid down his life for his enemies. And so when I look at Jesus, I say, Jesus went to the cross, and on the cross, he laid down his life for his enemies, and it was through this nonviolent act of love that the world will be redeemed. And it didn't come through him slaughtering his enemies, it came through his prayer on the cross that his father would forgive his enemies. The very people who were nailing him to the cross, Jesus was praying in the midst of his death as he was being killed by these people that his father would forgive forgive those people and he says this is what love looks like and he does this at a great cost to himself because it will mean something for them it is the very means by which they have hope to be redeemed and so Jesus says to us we are to love our enemies and we're to love them by doing good to those the cross was good it was an act of goodness to them we're to pray for those who mistreat us. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And then he gets into some specifics here. And listen to what he says in verse 29. We're picking up here now a new part because we only covered that a little bit last week. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. Now what is he saying? He's saying if someone who's an enemy delivers to you an act of violence... Don't respond by giving them violence. Give them love instead. I know this is difficult, and some of you are just already thinking, man, this is impossible. This is impossible. Stay with me. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. In other words, if someone takes something that belongs to you, don't give them what they have coming to them for this act of theft. Rather, give them love in return. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. 
Now, here's what happens. I want to tell you the reason that we get this so uh, jumbled up in our heads so quickly. We get this jumbled up in our heads quickly because we say, so, if someone slaps me, you expect me to just not do anything in return. Okay, well, first of all, no, I think Jesus expects that. If someone slaps you, Jesus says, don't slap them back. If someone steals from you, Jesus says, don't try to steal back from them. If someone asks from you, don't worry about what you're going to get in return, just give to them. And you say, well, how is this possible in regards to my enemies? Let me tell you this, okay? It's the, the battle for whether or not you're going to do this is not one in the moment in which you're slapped or in the moment in which someone steals from you. The battle is won prior to the moment even happening when you make a decision to determine the way that you're going to view enemies in general. So here's what this means. When Jesus says above, love your enemies, guess what he's saying? He's saying to these people, I want you to no longer distinguish the difference between your enemies and your friends. I want you to no longer distinguish a difference between your family and your friends and your enemies. So that when you think of your enemies, you think of them as your friends rather than thinking of them as your enemies. So now watch this. When you think about an enemy, okay, because here's the, this is the thing. We always run to these extremes. We just, we just launch right off into outer space and try to come up with extremes. And so here becomes the first one that is asked every time the issue of not responding with violence to enemies comes about. The first thing somebody always says is this. So suppose someone comes in my house and tries to rape my wife. You want me to just turn the other cheek? That's what always comes out right away. The question of what am I supposed to do if someone comes into my house and they have a gun and they're going to shoot me, do you want me to do nothing? Is that what you're saying? Okay. Well, first of all, here's what I want to do. I want to say that for most people that I've ever known in my life, the likelihood of someone coming into their house and shooting them with a gun is probably pretty rare, all right? I mean, look around here, okay? We're sitting in a multicolored building with a Chuck E. Cheese for kids in the back, and we're not in those environments where probably this is going to happen to us. But forget it for a moment, and let's just say, okay, what if? Well, here's what I want you to think about. If you had two children, and one of your children, in a moment of insanity and in some fit of rage, burst through the doors of your house, wielding a gun, and was saying crazy things to you, would your natural instinct be to get, reach for a gun and to pull the trigger and to shoot your child in the head? The answer is no. The answer is, is that you would do everything in your power to resist from bringing harm to your child in the same sense that you would some crazed intruder that comes into your house. You wouldn't look to kill your child when your child runs to the door. Rather, your heart would break, and in love, you would seek every possible creative means in that moment that the Holy Spirit might possibly give you to disarm the situation without killing your own child. You would do that because you would see this as your child who you love. And what I'm saying is this. Jesus tells us that we are to see every person alive in the same way. 
We're not to see people as enemies and friends. We're to see them all as the people whom God has created, whom he longs to redeem through Jesus the Messiah. That's how we're to view people. So it's not in the moment that I sit there and say, now I have to wrestle with whether or not I'm going to be faithful to Jesus. It's prior to the moment, it's morning after morning, day after day, in which I'm on my knees in prayer, begging God that he would form me into the image of his son Jesus so that I might respond in the way Jesus would respond. We are called to be like Jesus, not to be like anyone else. That's the bottom line. Being a Christian means being like Jesus, like no one else. So the easiest thing for me to do at times is just to ask questions like, well, if I'm trying to think about what I might should do in this situation, how do I envision Jesus acting in this situation? The question that I have to then wrestle with is, do I envision Jesus in any situation wielding a gun and shooting people? I mean, there would be something really wrong if we brought out a children's ministry curriculum and had it over there next door, and it had pictures of Jesus with assault rifles, wouldn't it? You would come and you would look and say, we're not going to that church. That church is nuts, man. They got Jesus and camouflage and an assault rifle. We're not going to go there. They say, well, how come? You say, because you can't put Jesus in an assault rifle, camouflage, get up. You can't do that. Why? That's not Jesus. Well, what's wrong with it? Well, Jesus doesn't get in camouflage and assault rifles. That's not Jesus. What does Jesus do? Jesus gets on the cross. He doesn't get in an assault rifle and camouflage. Ah, but we're called to be like Jesus. We're called to be on the cross then, not in camouflage and assault rifles. You with me? I told you. If I just told you Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you'd be happier. The great thing is, though, I'm not the pastor anymore, right? So I can just say this stuff, and then I can just go home. Next week, Adam can clean it all up, all right? It's not my problem anymore. Now I just get to say whatever I want. But I've been saying this stuff for years anyway, so it doesn't really matter, right? So here's what happens next. Let's watch the next piece of this, verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. In other words, here's what we're faced with right here, is this question of what does it really mean to look like Jesus? Does it mean to look like Jesus that I'm simply supposed to be a person who just loves, does good, and gives? Well, the thing is, is that I oftentimes hear people say things like this. You know, this is a really good person. And I say, what do you mean they're a really good person? I say, it's a really good person because this is a, a very kind person. They're very loving and, and they give, you know, freely when their neighbor wants something. They give freely of that. And, uh, you know, this is a person who they do a lot of good for other people. He's a fine man. This is a very fine woman. This is a person who has such a big heart. They give out of a heart of love. They give out of a, a sense of goodness. And, and they're just such a good person. And so the point in this is that that's great, and I'm sure that does make them a good person that I would want to live next door to. It would probably be a lot better to live next door to that person than to live next door to a person who just hated everybody and came out every morning and threw junk on my yard and just said, you know, I don't like you, and let's just throw bleach over here and burn your grass. But none of us live next to those people, do we? 
we, for the most part, live next to a bunch of people that are pretty much just good, upstanding American citizens. And so they're good, and they love their family members. But here's the thing. The problem is, is that when it comes to this notion of love, we have confused what Jesus has done, we've confused what Jesus has said, and we have come up with this idea that the distinguishing mark of a Christian is love, and that love is the most important thing about a Christian. And so it's our love that sets us apart from everyone else. But here's the problem. The problem is, love is not the distinguishing mark of a Christian, love for any Enemies is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. Don't you understand that even people in the mafia love their family? Even in gangs that do drive-by shootings, they do good for those who are good to them. Even Islamic terrorists lend to those who will lend to them in return. But Christians, Christians are not meant to be defined by doing the things that everyone else does. We are meant to be defined by doing the very things that Jesus does. And that's what makes us so radically different from the world. We are not meant to be everybody else. We're meant to be like Jesus. Our model for how to live in this world is Jesus Christ crucified, nothing else. That's our call. That's who we're to be modeled after. And so when it comes to this sense of I'm going to be a good person and I'm going to just love the people who love me in return and I'm going to just do good for those people who do good for me and I'm going to lend to those people who will give to me in return, that doesn't make you distinctly Christian and no one in the world looks at you and says, oh, you know, that's such a good loving person. I think I want to know Jesus. Instead, they look at you and say, hey, he... Absolutely. Why wouldn't he love the people who love him? That's what all wicked people do. You see, there's nothing about this sense of just loving some people that calls us to anything that is any more radical than what the rest of the world is doing. At all. Babies who know nothing about anything love their mom because their mom loves them. Babies are willing to give smiles to their mom because their mom gives smiles to them. You see, there's nothing that's distinctly Christian about love. Loving your enemies, that's a whole different concept. The problem is that in our culture that we live in, we have developed this idea of what courage and bravery looks like and of what it looks like to care for people and to defend people and to love people in this way in which we have taken a model of love and care and bravery and courage from something that is foreign to Jesus and then we say this is what it looks like and so then when it comes to questions about things like what does it mean to turn the other cheek well then we get into conversations about cowardice and and whether or not if I turn the other cheek and I I refuse to to lash out in violence towards that person whether or not I'm a coward I don't think anybody in their right mind would stand on the other side of that bridge and look Martin Luther King Jr. in the face and all those who marched with him as they were being beaten with hoses and say of those people that they were cowards. Martin Luther King Jr. was not a coward. 
And yet Martin Luther King Jr. knew that unless we embraced all of humanity with no concept of us and them but only us, that we were destined for the ruin of the entire human race. And all we have done as society has gone along, we think we've made advances. Yeah, we've made advances, okay. We have continued to advance in our ability to destroy one another. How fitting that I'm preaching a message on what it looks like to love and, and bring the world to a place of, of, of love for one another through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus and his love for the world and his sacrificial death on the cross rather than vengefulness on the day that we mark the anniversary of the atomic bomb exploding in Japan for the second time. The day that bomb exploded, it shined as bright as the sun. And anyone who could scrambled to run for their dear life. On the Mount of the Transfiguration, the reality of who Jesus was burst forth. And he shone like the sun. And rather than running from him, the disciples wanted to make their home there forever and worship him. You see, Jesus is stunning. He is stunning in all of his beauty. And he calls us to be like him so that we might be stunning in this world. We are called to look stunning in a world that is filled with darkness in which the concept of love has been diminished to mean nothing more than just doing good to those who do good to me. Picking up again in verse 35. But love your enemies and do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Now watch this. Then your reward will be great. Your reward will be great. Notice that we're to love people who don't love us in return. You say, well, you know, what am I supposed to get for that? Well, you won't get their love but you'll get the Father's love. You're to do good to those people who do nothing to you or do nothing for you. And in return, what will you get? You will get the goodness of your Father back to you. You are to give to those who can give you nothing in return. And what will you get? You'll get the good things that God has for you. So I'm not looking to my enemy to fulfill my needs. I'm looking to my enemy as one that I might bless so that I can be like Jesus, and I will look to God to fulfill my needs. God will reward me richly. My reward will be great. And you say, well, Mark, what if I die, though? What if I give my life away and I die? Then you will be like Jesus. And like Jesus the great reward will be that your Father will raise you from the dead and He will vindicate you. You see, the problem is, is that we're worried that somebody's going to get off. That's the problem. The problem is, is that we're worried that somebody's going to get by. Well, they shouldn't have got away with that. Why do you assume people get away with things? Unless you have a small concept of the far-reaching gaze of the Creator God. You think people get away with things? 
You think there are things that fly under the radar that God doesn't see? God sees everything. No one gets away with anything. Now, you and I have gotten away with a lot of stuff, haven't we? We don't want to talk about that. But then when we come face to face with the fact that it seems that we have gotten away with a lot of things, guess what we do? We then fall on our face and we sing and we worship in church services and we thank God for his grace to us to forgive us as sinners. Well, guess what Jesus says about that? He says, your reward will be great. And guess what? You will be children of the Most High. When you love your enemy, when you do good to those who don't do anything for you, when you lend to those who are going to give you nothing in return, you will be seen as children of the Most High. Why? Because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. The ungrateful and the wicked, those are enemies. Ungrateful and wicked, that's not what you call your friends typically, is it? Hey, who's this friend of yours? Oh, that person's ungrateful for everything I've ever done. They're not really my friend. Okay, well, then that makes them, I guess, your enemy, right? What about this wicked person? Are they your friend? Oh, they're horrible. They're wicked. Well, that makes them your enemy. So God has people who are ungrateful and who are wicked. And how does God respond to the ungrateful and to the wicked? Look at what it says. He is kind. He is kind. Do you understand? Do you understand the kindness of God? How kind is our Father? Today, the sun came up and the earth was warmed by the sun so that we didn't fall into an ice age or fall into something even worse, which is to be a planet far removed from the sun that has none of the sun's warmth so that no life can exist on planet Earth because it's too cold. And when that sun came up this morning and we were able to look and see the sun is still in the sky, and because the sun is still in the sky, we can know that the sun is still there and we haven't gone far away from it so that we can no longer experience its warmth as a planet so that human life can be sustainable. And when that sun was there this morning and when the planet was warmed this morning, it was not only a warm planet with a shining sun for the good people of the earth, it was a shining sun and a warm planet for the ungrateful and wicked enemies of God. God is kind. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 that God causes the sun to rise on the wicked and the unjust just the same as he does upon the just. And when the rain falls and waters the earth so that the earth can provide food for us to eat and to be sustained on this planet, God doesn't just send the earth rain so that the rain can exist in the areas that the good people live on planet earth. The rain comes to all the places of earth because God feeds the whole earth because God is kind. God is kind. And the problem is, is that we have this idea of God in which 
He's just some sort of monster, and he looks much more like something out of some sort of Roman or Greek mythology in which he's always standing around waiting to send lightning bolts down to strike the earth and to blow up people, and he's waiting at any given moment to just crush people for their very existence because he hates them, and he's some sort of schizophrenic maniac that doesn't know from one day to the next whether he wants there to be people or not be people because he just hates everybody, and by chance maybe he'll love somebody, but if he does, we don't know that he'll love him again the next day because he's just kind of some spastic God that we can never count on. And the reality is, is that Hebrews is very clear. And Hebrews says that when we look at Jesus, that the full radiance of who God is, is found in the person of Jesus. And we don't have to be confused about the character of God because everything that God is, the exact representation of God is seen in the face of Jesus. And Jesus has once and for all revealed God to us in the cross where He died for His enemies so that they might be redeemed. Why did He do it? Because God is kind. Why is he kind? Because he's like Jesus. That's what we have to get in our minds. God is just like Jesus. You can't say, is Jesus like God? You have to say, God is just like Jesus. Because I know what Jesus is like then I can know what God is like. I know what Jesus wants to do with His enemies, so I know what God wants to do with His enemies. I know what Jesus wants to do with a broken world, so I can know what God wants to do with a broken world. I know what Jesus thinks about the destiny of this planet, so I can know what God thinks about the destiny of this planet. And so when I look to Jesus, I look to Jesus and I say, there in the face of this loving God is everything I need to know about this world its future, and the way that God will relate to us. That's what we're called to understand as Christians, that we are to look like our Father in heaven. So when it says, then, when you do good to the people who don't do good to you, when you love your enemies, when you give to people who are never going to give you anything in return, when you do that, people will look at you and they will say, you are children of the Most High. Just like we did a baby dedication and we can look at Chase, and we can look at Caden, and we can see in them elements of their parents. And we can say, oh, you must be Tim's son. You must be Madison's son. We say, how do you know this is Tim's son? Because he looks like his father. How will people know that we are children of God? Because we will look like our Father. And what does our Father look like? He is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. When we are kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked, they say, those are children of God. Why? Because they look like their Father in heaven. And what does the Father in heaven look like? He looks like Jesus the Messiah. That's the radical call of Christians, is to be like Jesus. We're not called to be imitators of anyone else or any other standard of what is loving, good, and kind. We're called to the standard of Jesus alone. And so he says then in verse 36, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. There's the standard. You see, the standard is not with you. It's not what you think it is. It's who He is. Be merciful. Okay, 
merciful. To what extent am I to be merciful? Watch, here it is. Just as. That means just so there's no confusion. The extent to which you are to be merciful is the extent to which the Father is merciful. Just as the Father is merciful, that is how you are to be merciful. Just like the Father. You say, this is a recipe for maybe a lot of pain in my life. Yes. I'm not going to try to lie to you about it. I'm not going to give you some crazy sort of thing that we like to do here where we write, you know, in America, we're just trying to avoid pain. We just want to minimize pain. That's all we want to do. We have no concept of the cost of following Jesus in most places in this earth. And for most periods of history, most places on this earth right now, people are giving their lives for Christ day in and day out, and they're doing it because they feel more than anything in this world that in giving their life out of love, for another human being, they are being most like Jesus. And if they are killed for that, then when their father raises them, he will reward them richly just as he's rewarded his son Jesus and seated him at the right hand to rule forever. Do you understand that our destiny is to rule with Jesus forever? That's our destiny. And that's why I'm not worried about whether or not I get to rule for my short 50 years left on planet earth. I'm not excited about that. The idea of self-preservation is absurd. I got news for you. You're all going to die. Okay? Whether you die tonight or whether you die in about 5,000 nights from now, you're going to die. You're not going to will yourself to live any longer than your time on earth. So you're going to die so the idea that the most important thing in my life is self-preservation, guys, that's dedicating yourself to the most worthless endeavor I can think of. I mean, really think about this. If you want to dedicate yourself to something, dedicate yourself to something that actually has a goal that you might accomplish. So you say, you know what I want to do? I want to accomplish a goal of I want to build a, a, a house with my own bare hands. Then do it. And you'll actually accomplish that. But when you try to live every moment of your life for self-preservation, you're giving yourself to a cause that's just absolutely a worthless cause in the end because you're not going to live forever. So give yourself to Jesus, which is why we read that to live is Christ and to die is gain. I live as if it's Christ living my life in me. And then if I die, it's gain. Gain means that I gain everything that I didn't have before. So whatever it is you think that you'll gain by hanging on to your life is absurd because to live is Christ, to die is gain. So if you say to live is to preserve my life, well, then death won't be gain. If you say to live is, is to, to, you know, to invest myself into my grandchildren, when your grandchildren are all gone or you're all gone, then it won't be gain, will it? You'll have nothing left. To live is to 
earn a million dollars. Well, great. And then when you die and you have no more millions of dollars that work in the afterlife currency, death won't be gain. The only thing that makes death gain is when your whole life is given away sacrificially for Jesus so that you are defined as one whose life is hidden in the shadow of Christ. So when people look to you, they say, I can't distinguish at times your behavior from the behavior I would expect to see in Jesus. And that means that you look like Jesus because to live is Jesus. And when I I die everything Jesus promised that I would gain. I gain in that moment because I close my eyes, I take my last breath, and then immediately I'm in the presence of Christ. And all I hope for and long for and dream for has become real. That's to live as Christ, to die as gain. And that's why it's okay to love my enemies. Because what are they going to do for me? Nothing. Excuse me, they're going to do nothing for me? Of course they're going to do nothing for me. And that's why I can love my enemies because not only are they going to do nothing for me, but if they send me to Jesus by taking my life, then we'll just call it a gain. How else are you going to live your life in which you can meet death as gain? How else are you ever going to live? What else are you ever going to give yourself to so that when you draw your last breath, the only thing you become aware of is how substantially better things just got. It's only in Jesus. It's only in Him. And so he says in verses 37 and 38 at the end, so do not judge. Why? Why don't judge? Because he just said, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So don't judge. Instead, be merciful. And guess what? You won't be judged. Do not condemn, rather than condemn, be merciful, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. So don't do anything else, just be merciful. Give, give what? Mercy. Look at verse 30. Let's just say one thing about this last verse here, verse 38. You know how many times I've heard this verse quoted to me by somebody? Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. Anybody ever had that verse quoted to them when somebody was telling them about tithing? Yeah, I know that's when we hear that. You need to give. You need to tithe. You need to be sacrificial with your money. And we hear that, and then somebody undoubtedly will come along and say, the reason you give is because you can't outgive God, and when you give, it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. I got news for you. This isn't talking about you giving your tithe. It's talking about you giving mercy to your enemies. Oh, now we don't like this. See, you thought the tithing part of this was crap, didn't you? Let me use that verse to tell me to tithe. I don't even know what pressed down means. I don't want to be shaken. And somebody tells you, oh, it means there's something about they're pressing the olive and shaking and there's going to be oil and it's a sign of good. Okay, look, you thought when it was tithing it was manipulative. Well, it was manipulative because it ain't about tithing. It's about being merciful to your enemies. And so he says, when you, verse 38, watch, let me just help you. Give mercy and it will be given to you. A good measure of mercy pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure of mercy you use, it will be measured to you. 
That's what the verse means, my friends. I am convinced that there is nothing in this world that is more radical than loving your enemies. It is the single most radical thing that you will ever do in your life. The forgiveness of someone who wrongs you given freely from you is the most radical thing you will ever do in your life. The not returning violence to those who are violent to you is the most radical thing you will ever do in your whole life. But in the midst of all of these radical things, it is also true that those moments will be the moments that you are more like Christ than in any other moment of your entire life. And for me, I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to be like anybody else. I don't care about all the other stuff. I don't care about all the other things that this world seems to put up and say, this is success, this is failure, this is when you've made it, this is the way you should defend, this is the way you should attack, this is the way. I just want to say, listen, I'm only interested in being like Jesus. And well, that's a recipe for disaster. No, it's a recipe for resurrection. The resurrection and the exaltation that follows that is where reward is found. Somewhere on the other side of this earth today, there's some other lunatic with a microphone spewing hate and convincing people to die a martyr's death by strapping a bomb to themselves and rushing into the crowd of full of people, blowing that bomb up with some promise of instantly entering into paradise and receiving thousands of virgins. Number one, I can't think of a more demeaning sort of thing to women and to the world and to sexuality and to human existence than to promise people a bunch of virgins in their afterlife. We, on the other side of the world, hear the words of Jesus and he says, when I talk about martyrdom, I'm talking about something different. I'm not talking about putting a cross on someone. I'm talking about being put on a cross. Take up your cross and follow me. On the other side of the cross will be resurrection. This world has enough hate in it. In the church, will they find love? Will they find mercy? Will they find forgiveness? Will they find hope? Listen. In a moment, we're going to take communion. Never forget that the bread that was broken was meant to remind us, to, to foster memory in us that Christ gave Himself for you. Romans says that God demonstrated his love towards us in this. While we were yet still the enemies of God, Jesus died for us. You cannot come take communion 
apart from recognizing that you're coming to celebrate in the body and the blood of a person that was shed for you as an enemy. Communion is about the love of enemies. And so as you come, you come and you say, the bread and the wine, it's meant to remind me that God loved me as an enemy, and it's meant to send me out of this place loving my enemies. This is the hope. The hope for the world is not in bombs, it's in bread. It's not in bullets, it's in wine. It's not in killing, it's in resurrection. To this we are called. And oh Lord Jesus, one day when you come, you will end the madness, the endless cycle of violence in which you take from me, I take from you, that you take from me, I take from you, and it goes on and on and on and on and on. Lord, forgive us for what we have done to your earth. We have ruined this world. We have used the minds and the intelligence that you have given us to create new ways to destroy each other. Oh God, may we as a church begin to be the people who fall on our faces in repentance, recognizing that that's not what you called us to. You didn't create us to be people who destroy. You created us to be people who give life. And Lord, when we get confused, let us look to Jesus and see Jesus and to see clearly the place where Jesus gave His life for His enemies. And when we look at the cross, Lord, in those moments, we may not be thinking in terms of us and them and who's our enemies and who hates us and who do we hate. When we look to the cross, can we just remember that most of our lives at times are a demonstration that we're the enemies of God most of the time. Most of the time, we don't think of God. We don't care about God. And yet, in spite of all of that, He loves us day after day. How many times, Lord, are we ungrateful to the things that you have, ungrateful for the things that you've given us, Lord? And yet, you continue to show us mercy and you keep giving to us anyway. Lord, it's not a lot to ask to love our enemies and to be grateful for the chance that we have to actually do that. Lord, it's, it's actually a call to participate with you and divine suffering for the sake of redemption. And Lord, I know this is not easy stuff for us to hear. This isn't easy for me, Lord. I can't pretend I have this all together, God. God, I'm as broken as the next person in this room. The truth is, Lord, is that I get angry, I get upset. I don't want to do good to me. I don't want to pray for people who mistreat me. But Lord, deep in me, more than the desire I have for things to get made right through some sort of vengeance, Lord, it's just not even a desire for their good. It's just a desire for me to be like you, Lord. And so, Lord, in each of our hearts tonight, shape and mold us. And in the places, Lord, where it's difficult to hear these things, Lord, may we not run from you with a hard heart and be bitter and be upset and angry and thumb our nose at you, Lord, but rather may we be people who really wrestle with this. Can we just sit quietly before you, Lord, and just ask you to help us, Lord? Oh, Lord, we believe. Now help our unbelief. Come quickly, Jesus.
This world is a mess, and we're making it worse. 